History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening and welcome to a brand new series of The History Show. On this week's programme... You know, anyone that knew Dan Bryan said that he was the most wonderful man. He had a fantastic personality and a great capacity to listen, to take things in. And I think that's very important when you have to be an Mm. intelligence operative. Ireland's secret war. The recently discovered audio recordings that reveal the true extent of Irish Allied cooperation during World War II. Also, Kathleen Clark. She does not give up. She is politically active on the ground. She is still making cases for people who don't have a voice. Kathleen Clark was always the voice for them. Liz Gillis on the life of this founding member of Common Amman and first female Lord Mayor of Dublin. But we begin this evening with World War II. The Irish Free State has received the usual advance warning from Germany and the armed forces of Southern Ireland are on guard day and night. We have seen again and again that when Hitler intends to attack a neutral, he first makes accusations that the prospective victim has failed to observe the rules of neutrality. A recently published book reveals a lot about Ireland's role in the conflict by drawing on the first-hand recollections of the people involved. It's called Ireland's Secret War, Dan Bryan, G2 and the Lost Tapes that Reveal the Hunt for Ireland's Nazi Spies. The author is Mark McMenamin, who joins me now. Mark has previously written about Richard Hayes, the director of the National Library, who was instrumental in breaking a number of German codes during the war. He spent the emergency working to decrypt the Goethe cipher, a Nazi code that had stumped many of the greatest code-breaking minds at Bletchley Park. Richard Hayes is just one of the voices in an extraordinary archive of taped interviews telling the untold history of World War II in Ireland from the point of view of the main protagonists. For example... The Americans were building bases in Derry and Northern Ireland as civilians. And I suppose what they were building at the time were facilities for the British. That's the voice of Irish spymaster Dan Bryan, describing how the Americans, under civilian guise and in anticipation of joining the Allied war effort, built military bases in Northern Ireland. At Derry because the convoys and all that kind of thing and the destroyers were coming into Germany. And the audio tapes that formed the basis of the book spent the better part of 50 years basically gathering dust after they had been used in an attic in uh, California. Tell us how you came across this extraordinary archive. Well, Miles, it goes back, I suppose, to the aftermath of my first book, Codebreaker, and there was some interest in perhaps doing some sort of a project on the life of Hayes, be it TV, radio, probably a radio series, something like that. And I had it in the back of my mind that there must be some sort of an archive somewhere in the world of audio tapes. I don't know why it was just maybe an intuition or something. There was a book called The Shamrock and the Swastika that was written by uh, Carol J. Carter, which I consulted in the the basis of the research for Codebreaker. That particular book had been used primarily using oral histories. So the, the, the research was based on oral histories because a lot of the archives had actually had been opened at that particular point in time. Uh, a lot of them, particularly, say, the, the MI, the KV series, the MI5 files in London opened much later. So she, Carol didn't have access to a lot of these sources at the time, so she had literally really to go to the horse's mouth, all right, to get the information. 
and I contacted um, San Jose State University, contacted the library because they had uh, a section in the library called the Charles Burdick Military Collection. Now, Burdick was a great authority on the Second World War and an expert in the Avwehr, which was the intelligence branch of the, of the Wehrmacht. I decided perhaps there must be something in the archive here. This could be an avenue to find something. And I got in, in contact with uh, somebody in the archive there, a lovely woman named Carly. And she said that they had mainly kind of um, posters and memorabilia and things like that, but they didn't have any uh, archive tapes and suggested that perhaps I talk to Professor Carter herself. Now, I was delighted to hear this because I thought, God, it must be difficult to find Professor Carter. The book had been written in, I think, 1970, so it was a long time ago. I was put in contact with Carol by email. I decided then to give her a call. She gave me her, her, her phone number and she was just thrilled that somebody was interested in her research and she said of course you must come to California and I was absolutely you know I was thrilled I said I will come to California and then the world comes to a screeching halt as we all know and I couldn't travel to California I said I have to get I have to get my hands on these tapes so I said to Carol I wonder could you could you catalogue these or could you just tell me what's there you know so she said absolutely you know, that'd be really fun was the actual word she used and uh, she because they were, there was a shelter in place order at the time in, in California and they couldn't leave the house and she said this will keep me busy so she went back into, into, her, into her attic she went through the tapes she catalogued everything and she sent me a complete list of everything that was and there and your hair turned white overnight and it turned white overnight yeah you know and uh, so, so we, I said I have to get my hands on these but how do you how do you get your hands on tapes in the middle of you know an old box of tapes in the middle of a of a global pandemic you know so I I asked my friend Liam O'Brien Liam series producer of the Doc on One and 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 Liam we kind of arranged a plan to get the old tapes digitised in San Francisco and they came across over the uh, over the internet and uh, I remember the first day opening the uh, the first sound file up and it was it was just amazing mm. thirty three hours of tapes yeah al- almost up to thirty three yeah, yeah yeah incredible stuff and the bulk of the ta- these are interviews that she did back in the late sixties when she was writing the book Sham- the shamrock on the and the swastika the bulk of the interviews are with Colonel Dan Bryan very very important man tell me who he was. Well, Dan Bryan is a hugely influential uh, figure in twentieth century. Irish history, but he's not very well known to most people. In fact, if people know him at all, they know him from his role in the War of Independence. And, you know, he subsequently took the pro-treaty side. Um, He was involved, actually, in Bloody Sunday. Uh, He was a spotter on Bagot Street Bridge. But he doesn't come to prominence really until the war. He works his his way up through uh, the ranks of G2 of the intelligence branch of the army. Uh, He eventually uh, takes the role of deputy director and eventually director of intelligence. He was born in Goran in County Kilkenny at the turn of the century. He was a medical student in Dublin. And I suppose when I talk to Carol, when I talk to people that have met him, people like uh, Professor Unan O'Halpin, who has met him, you know, anyone that knew Dan Bryan said that he was the most wonderful man. He had a fantastic personality and a great capacity to get on with other people and to listen, you know, to take things in. And I think that's very important when you have to be in a, an mm. intelligence operative. He maintained all the relationships he had with everybody throughout the revolutionary period. And like he stayed friends with people that were on the, the anti-treaty side which is very, very important because there's no point, I suppose, in knowing what's going on with the people that you agree with. It's the people that you disagree with, uh, you know, that's important. But he kept all these contacts and he was able to see what was happening on the ground, who was talking to who in the country. And most importantly of all, in in the build-up into the outbreak of the Second World War, he was probably the one person that saw the woods from the trees. He saw the looming threat of fascism for what it was and he was able to see that Ireland could be exploited. 
that there could be elements, particularly, say, in, uh, within the IRA that could be used as a fifth column and in their naivety probably used, you know, to the advantage of the Germans. And he said about a plan, he, he pens a, a memo, um, Fundamental Factors Affecting Irish Defence, that sets out all the strategic vulnerabilities within the country at the time and how vulnerable we really were on the periphery of Europe. And you have to remember, this is all happening, you know, later on when the war builds up, you you have really, you know, England standing alone, France is the, the fall of France, and, and, and we're there, vulnerable on the edge of Europe. So, you know, the, a lot of the strategic defences were built up, up, up until 1939, largely uh, on Brian's writings. And then, of course, he maintained a very important security link with uh, with MI5, with Guy Liddell, who is the head of the Ireland desk at MI5, looking after Ireland. And it may or may not have been a mole, but we won't go into that today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, and with the Americans. So this is important then that there's a security relationship there and sharing information. And that's why he's so important. OK, other interviewees were James Power and James O'Donovan, two very different people on opposite mm. sides, basically. Who were they? Well, Jim O'Donovan was a very important figure in the in the War of Independence. But by this stage, uh, if you listen to the tapes, I suppose he's kind of left the IRA, you know, and he's kind of giving strategic help. And it's very interesting when you hear the insights, he's kind of nearly giving out about the state of the IRA that has been run into such bad condition. I think one of the quotes on the tape was he said, you can tick off on one hand the amount of men that had brains in the IRA at this period, you know, was one of the things he said. And he was given logistical support. Uh, he, there was transmitters, you know, sent over and he, he, he linked up with Berlin. He went over and actually made one of the first contacts after meeting a German spy named Oskar Faust who came here. And um, he ends up getting involved then with Hermann Gertz and he subsequently leaves the IRA. But a very interesting character. Also common in James Power is one of the interviewees. He ran the internment camp in Athlone. So he had a major insight into all the German spies that came to Ireland because he was in, in charge of their incarceration. He actually, um, funny enough, it was one of the things that Carol told me. Carol is a big bridge player and uh, so was Power. So they, they both really hit it off when they met, when they met in 1969, I'm talking about bridge. And Power had played bridge with all the German spies and felt he had really got to, to know them when they, were in, when they were in costume barracks. His granddaughter would be well known to a lot of listeners today. She's Samantha Power, who would be um, a major aide in the uh, the Obama administration. I think the um, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, within the book and within the tapes, of course, an extensive cast of characters, not just the people who are interviewed, but the people who are mentioned, people like uh, Brian, Richard Hayes, uh, subject of your biography. But one of the people who's talked about a lot is somebody whose name you mentioned, Hermann Goertz. Remind us who he was. Uh, Hermann Goertz was a German spy that was uh, dropped into Ireland in 1940. He managed to stay on the loose for 18 months. Now, you know, whether that was kind of by hook or by crook, we, we don't really know. There are a number of theories as to why he kind of remained at large for so long. Some say he just kind of ran into serious good fortune every time the authorities closed in on him. And others say that he was probably let on the loose for long enough so that the intelligence services and the guard, the special branch, could see literally who he was talking to. And there, there's some credence then to that because um, a lot of the people that were involved with them found themselves incarcerated quite quickly, you know, so there mm-hmm. might be something in that. He was sent here with a, with a code, the Gert Cipher, which was... Um, a communication method using enciphering messages. It was one of the most sophisticated in the war. Uh, there was actually uh, the, 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 that sort of style of code. There was an entire hut, you know, um, they're called ISO ciphers, intelligence section Oliver Strachey after Oliver Strachey in, uh, in Bletchley Park. And there was an entire hut like dedicated to trying to break this particular kind of communication. He came here with this code on an operation. It was called Plan Kathleen, which was kind of, 
it was a, a harebrained kind of a scheme that was devised by a man in Drumcondra called Liam Gaynor and the the plan was to try to create military instability in Northern Ireland you know to kind of get the IRA involved and then the, the Germans could come in kind of and preemptively you know help free Ireland and, and take over Ireland and you know, you know how likely it was to work probably not very likely but this was the plan he came with he was meant to be dropped into County Tyrone and he ends up being dropped into County Kildare and, and into <laughs> Meath actually and then wanders over to Carberry Bog in County Kildare you know there's some crazy stories of him which are actually corroborated in the tapes because you know it's so interesting listening to some of the people that knew him like one of the stories is that Herman Gertz walked into um, a guard the station in Palafuca you know and asked for directions to the local IRA you know another one <laughs> Another story is that he walked through Newbridge in the middle of the day in full Luftwaffe regalia, you know? Yeah, so. I, I, I think on the basis of those, you could probably give a lot of credence to the latter theory, which was that they basically strung him along for 18 months to see who he was chatting with <laughs> yeah. and then rounded him up and then rounded up everybody else as well. But let's actually hear Dan Bryan. He's discussing how Gertz was scuppered on his mission by the fact that uh, the IRA were not particularly efficient. He, he also mentions uh, Jim O'Donovan, the IRA leader, who helped Establish the initial links between the IRA and Nazi Germany just before the outbreak of war in 1939. Two things completely dished Gertz, even though he was loose for 18 months. One was the fact that, the, that there was, as Donovan said, that there was really no IRA. And Donovan said that before they had been hunted and harried by the government, particularly after the magazine Fort Reed. That was one reason that Gertz was ineffective. The second reason that he was ineffective was that he never, he never had any effective communication after he landed with the, with the Admiral. Dan Bryan there citing Gertz's lack of communication with Berlin as one of the reasons for his ineffectiveness in Ireland. Now, uh, Bryan covers a lot in these interviews. For example, he gives some fascinating insights into events like the North Strand bombing. Yeah, he talks about the North Strand bombing and it's quite interesting because, funny enough, it comes up in the middle of another conversation with Carol and he kind of changes the subject to talk about it, which I find quite interesting. He kind of interjects in the middle of it and he said uh, that he felt that it was an accident. He said that there was a problem with the radar, that the the, the British were interfering with the, with the radar signals and that the Germans were kind of misdirected and offloaded their bombs over Dublin uh, in, in quite an accidental fashion. Now, that was interesting, but in, a, in an effort to try and, I suppose, corroborate what Brian had said, I looked at Churchill's memoirs, and Churchill actually mentions that. He said, you know, something along the lines of, I think that we got it wrong in Dublin. He mentions that they it, it was this thing called the Battle of the Beams, you know, and they had interfered with, with the radars, they had jammed them, and it misdirected the Germans and sent them over Dublin, and they had to offload bombs here, and they weren't really sure where they were, you know, over the skies. So um, that's an interesting insight that comes from the tapes, uh, and particularly the Brian was kind of keen to get it across. Also, one of the things I think that comes across in the tapes is a little, some sort of conflict between the Department of Justice on the one hand and the Department of Foreign Affairs, or they were probably external affairs back then. Uh, uh, so tell me a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, that's very interesting because the way the way, <laughs> the way Brian actually starts that conversation off, I suppose he's, it's, it's OK to say it now. He says, I'll probably be done in the, for the Official Secrets Act for saying this, you know. He says that uh, there was some sort of a kind of a 
lack of communication or some sort of a beef between the two government departments and he really then in how they handled Gertz after Gertz was arrested and incarcerated and he, he laments the fact that he mightn't have been kept up to date as much as he should have been with how fragile Gertz's mental state was and the fact that he felt that he wasn't offered the opportunity to go in and have a, a talk with Gertz. And he says in the tapes, he said that he would have spoken to Gertz and he would have told him to man up, go back to his country, get debriefed, and that more than likely things would have been okay. Uh, now, Gertz, and I've, I've looked at documents in the National Archives where, where Gertz is writing, you know, to various government departments looking for clemency and not to be deported because he really sees himself as a big deal which he isn't, you know. Mm. He wasn't in charge of a concentration camp. He wasn't involved in any crimes against humanity. He was a kind of a low-level spy who didn't achieve very much. But he thought he was going to be executed when he went back and he, he thought he was going to, He thought he was going to be executed and he actually he actually says, uh, you know, if I go back to Germany, he says this to another German spy, Gunther Schultz, I should like to die like our, like our leaders. And he, he references Hermann Goering there, you know, and, and later transpires that he, he has a cyanide capsule of his own, you know. And uh, so this was his mindset. He he. he he mentions in some of the papers I looked at actually in the National Archive the Spartacist uprising that he'd been involved in that and that uh, you know if uh, the that Russians Rosa Luxemburg and, and Karl Liebknecht yeah in exactly and, and, and he says that if um, you know he'd been involved in the in, in the Wehrmacht uh, in, the, in, in the German army at that point and, and like, he basically says that uh, you know if the, if the Russians get their hands on him they're going to execute him now you know whether he was involved in that or not I, I don't know it's, it's a common characteristic of Gertz's life that he uses poetic license in a lot of different areas to you know exaggerate who he was what he was about you know most likely probably not true you know he was kind of just a bit of a fantasist and kind of a bit of a chancer but uh, he, he really strongly says that you know he's going to get he, he'll be executed he'll be so many things are going to happen to him in reality and there's correspondence from General Lucius Clay, you know, in Berlin and to to the Department of External Affairs on Gertz's case. I mean, he would have been probably debriefed and they might have probably just let him go. Mm. You Doesn't know. actually sound like somebody who would have made a really good spy, but <laughs> there you go. Um, now, you've also brought in a clip of an interview with Stephen Hayes, who was one of three wartime chiefs of staff of the IRA. Tell us about him. Tell us about his connection with Gertz. Yeah, there was there was three wartime chiefs of staff. Obviously, the most famous uh, would be Sean Russell mm. uh, in his absence, Stephen even uh, Hayes takes over a uh, very well known kind of in Wexford uh, GAA circles. He, he'd been involved in the War of uh, Independence himself, but was not well liked within the IRA at that particular time. Uh, a lot of people looked up to Russell and they found Russell was quite formidable leader. And uh, Hayes was kind of put in, in a, you know, was he in charge? Was he not in charge? And Russell had gone to the States first and then Nazi Germany. And then ended up in Nazi Germany. Yeah, he'd gone originally to the States and actually was arrested. There's a famous picture of him. Um, he was arrested when, when the King came to the United States as a kind of a, he was a, a security concern, as you might imagine. So yeah, Hayes takes over. Hayes, Carol had had met Hayes in Wexford in latter stages of his life, and he he came across and she says to me, and you can hear this in the tapes as kind of like. I suppose someone who's quite naive and hadn't really thought out the gravity of what they were involved in and um, how dangerous Nazi Germany actually was. One of the things he says is that. Um, all we wanted from all we wanted from Germany was help. We had no interest in them coming in here. You know, I think mm. he says in a hundred years, uh, you know, we'd be still trying to get rid of them. Then, so there's a huge level of naivety, and you know, I suppose it's a thing that people wonder about. They wonder about the intentions of Russell of people like that. But when you hear Hayes, who was directly involved in that, that sense of naivety really comes across. Well, let's hear a clip of Stephen Hayes talking about his perspective on Hermann Goertz. 
see, Germany Germany actually looked like winning the war at that particular period as he was here. Mm-hmm. The early stages. Yeah. And we were more or less interested in if they were winning the war, what kind of a deal we could make with them. Regarding the commerce commerce and stuff like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think you thought that Gertz was not the man for the job, you said. I don't think so. I don't think he was. Because he he didn't understand, first of all, he didn't understand. If like you coming here as a stranger, you wouldn't understand no probably a lot of stuff I'd mentioned to you. Mm-hmm. You, like you, you wouldn't understand this thing about the Irish Army and the IRA and it just puzzling yeah. to anybody, you know? Sure. Right. But like our end of it was revolutionary and he he disguised it as what did he call it as uh, cops and cops and robbers to paint the stuff that we were playing. Oh, <laughs> And that was the voice there of uh, Stephen Hayes. And uh, as you say, Hayes goes on then in that interview to compare the Germans and the British. Yeah, he goes on to compare the Germans and the British. And like, there's some great insights into the mindset of some of the, the Republicans that collaborated with, the, uh, with, with Nazi Germany in this period. Uh, one of the really interesting things I actually found was Hayes um, talks about Russell and he talks about Frank Ryan. And uh, he compares um, Russell to Patrick Pierce, and he compares Frank Ryan to James Connolly. And, uh, and he said, you know, he said, uh, Russell was a revolutionary. He just wanted the British out. That's all he wanted, you know, whereas he had no interest in anything else, you know, in politics or anything else. Whereas, you know, Ryan, Ryan was a thinking man. You know, Ryan was like Connolly. He knew what the country would be like when we got the British out. And this is the kind of insight. So that was very interesting. And now it's incredible to think that people like Brian and Hayes were both born around the turn of the century and were both active during the revolutionary period. That's one of the most interesting things is like you have these people that are on all different sides of the conflict. Brian trying to round up the IRA, trying to round up German spies, etc. Then you have Hayes, Russell and these other guys who are seeing the opportunity maybe to take back the North using Germany as a vehicle. And it's very hard to believe that they were all 20 odd years, maybe less than 20 odd years beforehand, all fighting on the one side and all, all comrades. So that's incredibly interesting. And uh, it's very easy for us to kind of look at that today when we have distance, but like when it was so close to that particular time. And for people to have just such different viewpoints and such different ideologies, for Brian to say, yes, you know, I will work with the British, I will work with the Americans, and, and that will ultimately prove to be beneficial to the country. Whereas others say, you know, no, we shouldn't do that. And um, and that schism or that division, you know, that's not necessarily just between the IRA and the Defence Forces. That divide is within the Defence Forces too. You know, there are people that disagree very passionately with what Brian is doing, even speaking to uh, the uh, the British Security Forces. OK, you brought one final clip, Dan Bryan telling a story, and we're back to the pastime of bridge here, you mentioned it already, uh, relating to an American serviceman based, obviously, in Northern Ireland. And he says American servicemen were known to come down to Dublin and uh, eat steaks, get drunk and that kind of thing. But one of them went on a rampage. Do you know what happened once? There was a bridge conference in Dublin. Oh, this was during the war, I think. Uh, this was after America came into the war. An American soldier came down here from Northern Ireland, got a lot of drink, ran amok, assaulted and knifed one of the people at the tournament. Mm-hmm. And before he was arrested, was on the way back to the border. I mean, I think he was simply pushed back by the police. But he very seriously, he might have murdered him. I mean, he was mad with drink. But this was never put in the papers but there was people from all over Ireland at the tournament 
and the, this man who should be playing at the tournament when it was sent to a hospital everybody at the tournament knew about the incident uh, they went home to their hometowns all over Ireland and told, told everybody <laughs> told everybody and of course it, lo it lost nothing in the ten. No, and imagine. you see, it, it also caused people to say, oh, you'd never know what was going on. Sure, if that wasn't in the paper, God knows what was. But I, I, this, this, you see, is an interlude, but it, it, you know, it shows the kind of thing that went on. The voice there of Dan Bryan, bridge as a very dangerous contact sport and American GIs overpaid, overbridged and over here. But what's interesting there is what he says at the end, the level of cynicism that would be induced by the fact that a lot of people were aware of what had gone on never got into the papers. Yeah, it never got into the papers. So, you know, that's the censorship that was there and they had to they had to maintain the idea that Ireland was strictly neutral and that there was, you know, no presence of anybody here. And you know, that's interesting and then as well with the border with Northern Ireland that they were they were kinda of coming over and back, you know. And and Brian alludes to in the tapes as well, you know, that the, the Americans have been in Northern Ireland well prior to uh, Pearl Harbor. They had been uh, coming over and building ba uh, bases particularly in Derry for British destroyers uh, under civilian guise and and Brian maintains in the tapes that it was in anticipation of joining the war so that's incredibly interesting as well mm. Mm. Okay, it's a fascinating archive uh, we've just scratched the surface of what is in those 33 hours or thereabouts of tapes and uh, no doubt it'll make an incredible radio series uh, someday. I hope so <laughs> A lot of material there, we look forward to that one. Uh, the book inspired by these tapes is called Ireland's Secret War, Dan Bryan, G2 and the Lost Tapes that Reveal the Hunt for Ireland's Nazi Spies It's published by Gil Book the author is my guest, Mark McMenamin. Mark, thank you very much for joining thank you, us. Miles, thank you. After the break, Liz Gillis joins me to talk about the life and work of Kathleen Clark, the first woman Lord Mayor of Dublin. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Kathleen Clark is perhaps most famously known as the widow of Tom Clark, who was executed for his role in the Easter Rising. But she was much, much more than that. She has her own story to tell as an activist, a businesswoman, a politician and the first woman to serve as Lord Mayor of Dublin. She died 50 years ago on the 29th of September 1972. And to mark that anniversary last month, a specially commissioned portrait of Clark was unveiled in the council chamber at City Hall. Joining me this evening to talk about this extraordinary, feisty, outspoken woman is Liz Gillis, historian in residence at South Dublin County Council and our researcher here on The History Show. Liz, many women who lost loved ones in the revolutionary period were thrust into public life, particularly the 1916 widows. That was the case with Kathleen Clark, but what was her life like before she met Tom Clark? Well, she was a very independent woman, um, but I think Kathleen Clark, she was going to do something regardless whether it was politics, in which case she did, but also in business, because right from the start, she's so independently spirited. But Kathleen, looking at her, her background herself, I was born in Limerick, um, her heritage, she has a connection to the Republican movement through our dad, Edward, and then through our more famous uncle, John Daly. And her mother was also a very independent woman. She was a businesswoman. So Kathleen inherits all of these strands from both sides of her family. 
But our Uncle John Daly had been involved in the Fenian Rise in 1867. He's imprisoned. So Kathleen is very much aware of the Republican movement. She's aware of politics. So I think when you put those two strands of her life between our mother and our dad and our uncle, Kathleen is going to do something. And she actually does something in both of those, those areas because she does set up her own business, a very successful business. And then she becomes involved through Tom and the aftermath of his death, very much involved in the revolutionary movement. But she's one of nine children. The Daly family is a big family, eight girls, one boy, and uh, Ned, he was the baby. And actually, he never got to see his dad um, because his father died shortly before he was born, so hence he's named after him. And she's just entrenched in the lead-up to 1916, the aftermath of 1916, the whole revolutionary period. And how did she meet Tom Clark? Well, that was actually through our Uncle John uh, Daly. So he was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Um, Tom Clark is sworn into the IRB. And they were both involved in the Fenian Dynamite campaign, which uh, happened in England in the 1880s. And they're arrested, put on trial, and they're both sentenced to penal servitude. When they're in prison, that's when they really, really meet and the friendship, you know, really solidifies. But they endured horrible treatment at the hands of the guards in Portland prison. Now, Tom ends up spending 15 and a half years in prison and Kathleen actually posthumously published his memoir, Glimpses of an Irish Felon's Prison Life. But um, there was an amnesty campaign in Ireland and you've got Maud gone she's involved in this because they were aware of what was going on in the prisons and how they were being treated they are successful in getting John Daly released so he comes home to Limerick comes home to a hero's welcome he is appointed to the, the, the council he actually becomes the mayor of Limerick and then that's 1896 sets up a, a, a bakery which Kathleen refused to work with him in um, probably just a clash of personalities there but Tom Clark is still in prison. And John Daly, when he, he returns, he is just talking about Tom Clark, Tom Clark, Tom Clark. And, and Kathleen talks about this in our book, you know, that she just wants to meet this Tom Clark because John Daly has, he just talks about him so much. And then Tom Clark is released in 1899. And he comes down to Limerick, you know, daily lays on this big spread, you know, here's welcoming this this Fenian this, hero. This is somebody who has been very badly treated in an, uh, for a long period in prison. Doesn't look great, let's face no, it. Rattled. No, and Kathleen talks about this, and it's so funny, um, because she's literally been hearing stories for the last three, four years. And what she has sort of created in her mind in, Sean is this... Connery. Yeah, a Republican Adonis. And she is so disappointed when she actually meets him for the first time. And I just, I just want to quote her from, from our book. And she says, It was my first time meeting him. I was keenly disappointed. His appearance gave no indication of the kingly heroic qualities which Uncle John had told us about. There was none of the conquering hero which I had visioned. He was emaciated and stooped from the long imprisonment and hardship. As I came to know him, his appearance recedes into the background and the man Uncle John portrayed was revealed. By the time he left Limerick to join his mother and sister in Clemenum, we'd become intimate enough to agree to correspond with each other. So she sees beyond the, you know, the, the looks and, you know, after what he had endured for 15 and a half years, you know, it would age anyone. And ironically, Uncle John did not approve of the relationship. No, no, uh, he was totally against it. Although he adored Tom Clark, he also adored his niece, but he knew that what Tom's Clark aim in life mm. was to strike a blow for Irish freedom. And if they did have a life together, they would not live out their lives together. You know, and he didn't want that for Kathleen. 
Bush doesn't listen um, because they continued their relationship. Tom went off to America and Kathleen followed him and they got married in New York in 1901. And John McBride was actually the best man at the wedding. Now, they do, they do come back from America to Ireland. She didn't, at that point, she didn't actually want to come back. I mean, she'd done very well for herself in America, hadn't she? Oh, yeah. Um, like, Kathleen Clark, very astute businesswoman. Um, she had a very successful drapery business or, or a seamstress business um, in Limerick. She winds that up, goes to New York, and she set up two businesses. Um, they ran an ice cream parlour in upstate New York, and then they ran a market garden. They'd had their first child, first son. So she sets up life. She has a life over in, in America. But Tom, and around this time, 1906, 1907, you've got a young group emerging within the ranks of the IRB. Now, the IRB at this stage pretty much had become a talking shop of old men in a pub talking about the heyday of 1867. But these young men want to reinvigorate it, bring it back to what it was. But these men... It's Sean McDermott, it's Bonham Hobson, it's Dennis McCullough and they totally restructure it. And Tom Clark has an eye on what's happening in Ireland. He's involved with the clan over in America and he sees, here's younger versions of him and he begs her to come back. But she knows she doesn't want to come back because they have this life and if they come back to Ireland, that's it. You know, she will lose Tom to Ireland. But she can't keep him in America because he will be miserable. So reluctantly she agrees to come back 1907 and when, when Tom Clark meets Sean McDermott about 1907-1908, literally that was the seeds of the Easter Rising being sown there and then. Mm. And from a business perspective, is she very much involved in the tobacconist's business? Oh yeah, Kathleen Clark could not stay idle. Um, so, you know, they, they set up a tobacconist shop firstly in Amin Street. Uh, the building is actually still there, but then the more famous of the shops is number 75 Parnell Street. And it's on the corner, was on the corner of Parnell Street and O'Connell Street. And this becomes a, a hub, a Republican hub. You've got all sort of the men that will emerge as the Republican leaders. They're going there. She's running the Irish uh, Freedom newspaper. She's watching what's going on. She's facilitating Tom, you know, allowing this shop to be used. And the thing is, Tom Clark was only released on licence. So it is being watched. The premises are being watched by the police. Plus, she's also on the radar because of who she is, her family connections. She's also immersing herself in the Republican movement because 1914 you have the setting up of Cumann Amon. And she's a founder member of Cumann Amon. She's a member of the Art Crave, the central branch. She later becomes the president of that branch. So she has another two kids. She's running two tobacco in a shop. She's involved in what Tom's getting involved with. And then she's, um, you know, involved in the women's revolutionary movement as well. I can imagine that when, on, you know, the Easter week, the week of the of the rising, and uh, Tom Clark is heading out the door to take part, that she would want to be with him, she would want to have a rifle in her hand, she would want to be by his side. Would that be the case? Or, um, oh, yeah. He, presumably he tried, he had to dissuade her. Yeah, um, and I just, I just often think, what would it have been like if Kathleen Clark had been in GPO or a Moore Street? I don't think they would have surrendered. She wouldn't have <laughs> let them surrender. But she wants to be with Tom. And, um, but see, he had a very different role. for. There was a specific job for Kathleen. She had to be the link. She had to be linked between the old and the new because he knew the leadership of the IRA or the IRB would be wiped out. But his whole thing with the 1916 rising is that it wasn't going to be another 
you know, 1848 rebellion. It wasn't going to be, you know, a flash in the pan. This was going to be the spark that ignited the flame of the revolution. So he gives her gold, about £3,000 worth of gold and names that she is to contact um, in the IRB if they're, if they're still free, if they haven't been killed. And she is to reorganise. So when he, he leaves on the weekend of the Easter Horizon, you know, she's she says goodbye to him and she's accepted this is the last time she will see him. It turns out to not be the case, but she was prepared for that. He had prepared her for that, but specifically her role was to reorganise, which she, she does on her. Now, she doesn't just lose her husband, she loses her baby brother as well. Yeah, like if if we look at what happens in 1916, Kathleen is not just a widow or the, or the sister of, of leaders that are executed. Um, Kathleen herself is arrested after 1916, taken to Shift Street Barracks. And the thing is, like she she's accepted. You know, she knows that it's over, that the, the and rebels... And she's pregnant. She is pregnant, which she, she Tom didn't know. But she's sort of accepted that Tom has been killed at some stage in the rising. But then she gets word that her husband then wants to see her in Clemenum Jail because that's where he's waiting the sentence of death. And if you can imagine, like, if, if, if it was me, you know, and I get to see the love of my life one last time, I would be running up to the place. And, and she goes to Clemenum Jail and the cell door is open and she starts to, like, have, like, berating for, you know, why did you surrender? You told me you weren't going to surrender, but pretty much I thought I'd never see you again and he got her standing in front of me. And he's then trying to explain to her, well, I didn't want to surrender. They sort of made me surrender. There was a vote taken on it. And what you see in those moments, like, this is a real marriage that's, that's happening in front of you, despite the fact it's going and get shot like in a couple of hours. That's on the sword of May and Tom is executed. And she's back in Comanum that night um, because Ned Daly, who was commandant of the garrison, the forecourt, 25 years old, he's executed on the 4th of May. Now, she couldn't tell Tom that she was pregnant because she didn't want to unnerve him. She's like, when she sees him in the cell, it's like he is prepared to go to his death. And maybe if he knew, would he try to get clemency or the sentence reprieve? But she couldn't do that. What he had endured for 15 and a half years, she couldn't do that to him again. So Ned is executed on the 4th of May. Her Uncle John, he was traumatised at the loss of Tom Clark, Ned Daly and Sean McDermott. She loses Sean McDermott as well. He's executed on 12 because he was like a, a son to her. And then she lost her baby as well. So mm. that massive loss that she's endures, she has to put that to one side because Tom had a role for her and she had to do what he had asked her to do. So 1918 uh, comes along and along with a number of other prominent members of Sinn Féin, she's arrested in this spurious German plot. So this is just before the election, the election of, of December of 1918. She's imprisoned alongside Countess Markovich and Maud Gon McBride. Uh, now, sorry, I'm, I'm, I can't almost avoid laughing because I'm aware of what your answer was going to be. This one. She... she she didn't like the Countess. Or he certainly didn't like her at this at this point. No, uh, the Countess really gets on her nerves. Um, so if we think back to 1916, like Kathleen Clark is just, you know, she's she's she has terrible worries on her because she was rent from her children in 1916. She's rent from her children in 1918. And, you know, she is constantly just trying to find out where her kids are. Are her kids OK? Who has them? And then Countess Markovich just keeps swanning into her cell. <laughs> 
And um, Kenneth Markovich is on point. And she keeps flicking her ash. And this is something that really gets on Kathleen's nerves. And eventually she bars her from her cell because she's not respecting Kathleen's wishes. And then you've got these scenes, you know, you can pick And she writes, she writes all this in, in a series of letters, which are very, very funny. So vividly. And you just have to laugh. And you can imagine, mm. like, because Countess is this woman, you know, who's quite prepared to die, but, you know, won't take on Kathleen Clark, you know. So it shows the personality. And, but then a, a real friendship emerged between the two women because when they are released Countess goes to live with Kathleen Clark so she, you know when, one thing about Kathleen Clark is like there's your boundaries don't cross those boundaries because if you do I will let you know and that's what you see with Kathleen throughout her life <laughs> but poor Countess Markovich um, suffers the wrath of Kathleen <laughs> Now she obviously you know she's not going to step away from this uh, yeah. after the uh, you know after the first doll meets in the mansion house and all of that kind of stuff so she she keeps going she maintains her activities she does um, and she actually thought that she would have uh, been put up for election once the candidates in 1918 now she is chosen over a, a man but she's very much involved at the local level so you have Sinn Féin uh, represents being elected to local council and um, Kathleen Clark is one of them she's done a lot of work on the ground and um, when the doll courts the Republican courts are set up she She's a judge in the Republican courts. Also, she's a founder member of the Irish White Cross, which is very, very successful alongside Anya Kant. And because of who she is, you know, she's still connected to Cumann Amon. Our house is getting raided constantly. And then in 1921... You have Countess Markovich being elected in the 1918 general election. But then you have in 1921, that general election, another five women are elected to the doll and Kathleen Clark is one of those women. And uh, after the Civil War then, uh, what does she do? I mean, she's anti-treaty. Um, what does she do after the Civil War? Oh, she's still very much uh, involved in uh, political life. She is a founding member of Finnafal. And she had been elected, you know, in the general elections that followed uh, the Civil War. She's elected and then she loses her seat. She's re-elected. But um, she is then, she's actually appointed, she becomes a senator. And she remains in that position until that's abolished in 1936. She's still very much involved in, you know, uh, organisations where, you know, they're, they're making real efforts to improve the lives of people on the ground. Um, so doing a lot of work like that and continues her work with other women that she had been involved with. But her role as a senator is, is a hugely important role that she takes full advantage of and uses as a platform to speak out and raise issues that she feels need to be addressed. How did she become Lord Mayor of Dublin? Well, there's a whole thing story about this um, because she actually ran for, you know, election quite a number of times. But by the time she, she is elected, you actually have members of her party, Fianna Fáil, actually trying to block her election because Kathleen had been so outspoken against De Valera and, and other people that it was like a, a, a punishment. So Alfie Bourne, it's actually Alfie Bourne, the outgoing Lord Mayor, it's his casting vote that makes Kathleen, you know, that it's she has the winning vote and she becomes Lord Mayor in 1949, first woman but of she, Dublin. But she won't wear the chain because no. it's, it's King Billy's. Yeah, so, oh God, again, here's Kathleen coming in for her own and um, being Kathleen. So you have to, she won't wear the robes, um, she won't wear the chain. So, because, as I said, it was given by King Billy. So you have to, she has to get her own chain of office. And it's a beautiful chain, very simple. And actually, Karina Nidali, when she was Lord Mayor in 2016, that was the chain that she wore. But she also redecorates the mansion house. And the first thing to go is the portrait of Queen Victoria. Like, Jordan, or her, her, her There was still a office. portrait of Queen Victoria 
story in the Mansion House in 1939. Oh, yeah. Good yeah. God. And it makes the papers. And while she's prepared to leave the portraits of the Lord of Tenants there, because she feels like they're just minions of the Queen, um, no, Queen Victoria, she has to go. At what point does she become disillusioned with the Ireland of the 19, 1930s and 1940s, 1930s in particular, I suppose, um, even though Fianna Fáil have taken over her party? It's, it's for that reason that she becomes disillusioned because Fianna Fáil, they were the Republican Party and she felt that Fianna Fáil had betrayed its roots, as in, you know, the focus now wasn't on getting united Ireland. You know, she, she called Eamon de Valera out when he attends a, a meeting of the League of Nations that, you know, while you had the whole of Europe there, you should have been telling them that, OK, this is 1938, uh, Britain still has control of our ports and so on. And she is publicly attacked by the members of Fianna Fáil. You also have in the 40s especially, there's the bombing campaign uh, carried out by the IRA in England and she doesn't agree with this because she believes the Second World War is happening it's the wrong time but down in the south you then have the executions being carried out by de Valera's government of IRA prisoners many of whom some of whom had been veterans of 1916 and she opens up the mansion house so they can use that as a base for the reprieve committees for example Patrick McGrath and Thomas Hart they're awaiting execution and she's writing to her, her political colleagues and she's saying, you know, give them a reprieve and you have Tomás McCourton's son, you know, he was sentenced to death and she speaks out on his behalf. Now, where they're not successful with Hart and McGrath, they are successful in getting, you know, McCourton reprieved and she does become just so disillusioned that she, she resigns from Fianna Fáil. Um, they accept it, um, it seems, very gladly and although she's not, as active in sort of the big politics, she does not give up. She is politically active on the ground. She is still making cases for people who don't have a voice. She's speaking for people who don't have a voice and she's making an effort and making a difference for people whose issues of how everyday life is really affecting them. Kathleen Clark was always the voice for them. She never gave it up. Yet somebody who bitterly opposed Britain in Ireland, Britain's rule in Ireland, Britain's involvement in Ireland, towards the end of her life she moves to Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, she moves over and lives with her son. It's just, it's it's sort of sad when you think about that, that, you know, she was so dedicated to a free Ireland and she ends up across the water. But she does make a triumphant return on the 29th of September 1972. This is why we're talking uh, talking about her because she's uh, died 50 years ago. She had a good innings, 94 years of age, yeah. but she gets a state funeral. She does one of three women. To, to actually be given that honour. And again, the newspapers, there's lovely tributes to her in the newspaper. Um, there's one guy that actually, he, he writes in this little letter saying, you know, he, he just was so impressed and touched by the love that her and Tom had. And she is the Ireland's greatest ever woman. And the photographs of the funeral, there's like hundreds of people, you know, just there at the, the cemetery and stuff. And she's buried out in Dean's Grange Cemetery. OK, well, if you have been infected by Liz's enthusiasm, very obvious enthusiasm for Kathleen Clark, and how would you not be? You can read more about her in her biography. It's called Revolutionary Woman, My Fight for Irish Freedom. It's published by O'Brien Press. It was edited by her niece, Helen Lytton. Liz, thank you very much indeed for coming on to The History Show and discussing why you love this passionate, formidable woman, Kathleen Clark, who died 50 years ago this year. Thanks a million. 
That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.